Hi, I'm Jackie. And I'm Candice. Welcome to WTF Women Talk Finance, a podcast where we take a simplified approach to all things finance, including investing, a topic we believe women don't talk about enough. We'll be speaking to women from all walks of life whose experience will help us frame some of the issues and challenges that women face every day in business. Maybe you're starting your own company, thinking about real estate. We'll have experts on the show to talk about what you need to know. Whether you're in your 20s or your 50s, we want to help you invest in your future starting today. I'd like to give a quick disclosure before we begin our conversation. This overview is for informational purposes only. We might include some projections and those should not be relied upon for the purpose of investing. Past performance is not indicative of future results and any investments we mention are meant for accredited investors only. And any offer can only be considered upon review of a prospectus and relevant offering documentation. So please keep this in mind as we move through this overview and remember that these are our opinions only. Today's guest was Isabel Rodriguez, Wilson. From Capitol Hill to the White House, Isabel worked with international dignitaries, members of Congress, high-level federal and state government officials, corporate and special interest groups, and entertainment celebrities. She served the White House as senior advisor to the President of the United States. She directed elaborate details associated with domestic and international event activities, travel, protocol, and media for President Clinton and First Lady Hillary Rodham Clinton. After accepting the role of executive director of the Boys and Girls Club of North Lake Tahoe in 2005, she then led that for 10 years and then retired in northern Nevada with her husband and her 12-year-old son, Julian. Again, such a pleasure and an honor. Thank you, Isabel. And if you didn't catch our first episode, go back and listen to the week's prior episode because we're diving right in today. I want to start off with how, I mean, the the young woman who had the dictionary slapped on her desk um, by this, you know, powerhouse to who we're sitting with now what a, what a journey that is and i i just keep re, i just keep living this in my brain just wanting to soak up your life story your learning curve from your experience in washington dc I, I mean even going back to that kind of those initial experiences washington dc the white house um how did those enhance and prepare you for your later successes in managing nonprofits in Northern Nevada? Uh, well, uh, so many, you know, I keep, I've mentioned in the previous podcast about so many have been around to support and it really is the individuals and the experiences you have along the way. You know, we can have some bad experiences and it turns us off to whatever that may have been. Mine was positive. Either it was positive because my employers thought that I was fun to work with or I thought it was positive and just going around, you know, living life in Isabel land, um, or a combination of the two. But after reaching Washington, D.C., I went to work for a law firm that was a public policy uh, firm and working on Capitol Hill, and primarily men. Uh, at the time, there were only um, seven lawyers, and there were three secretaries, and I was one of the three. And this law firm evolved to be a boutique energy law firm, uh, and building its lawyers from Capitol Hill. And so that law firm grew from seven lawyers to 150 lawyers over time. And so I grew too. The lawyers and I worked well together and primarily was because they respected me and they appreciated my commitment to doing it right and to doing it in a deadline. 
And so within this law firm, Van Ness Feldman, which later became Van Ness Feldman and Sutcliffe, I was a top-notch legal secretary that they pulled out of the secretarial pool and put me into legislative so that I could now start doing legislative analysis of policy issues important to our clients. So Isabel went because they saw in me an an analytical skill set that I didn't know I had, but they saw it and they pulled me out of the pool and they said, you know what, we want you to start lobbying oil and gas issues. And my first time was of course resistance, right? It was something new, I wasn't sure, I don't do oil and gas, you know, give me something more social. You know, I'm more on the social side than I am on these hard issues. And so they said, well, pumping your own gas, that's a perfect way to start. Did you know that it costs $5 a gallon to fill up your car? And I said, yes, and it's really expensive. And they said, that's why you need to know this issue. And I became a lobbyist on domestic production of oil and gas. That caused me to do analysis of legislation. It caused me to do write-ups and newsletters. It caused me to form a coalition of end users of petroleum. Who are those people? We don't only put it in our car, but we do asphalt paving with it. We do roof shingles with it. We do petroleum jelly with it. We do makeup with it. We do uh, tourism with it. We do jet fuel with it. And so I built a coalition of end users and I started a policy group to lobby the Congress. And that was my next step. People were there to help me. The lawyers were there and they said, if you have a question, just come back. The most important thing is to get up to the hill and listen and pick up as much paper as you can. And so I listened and I picked up a lot of paper and there was my transition from clerical into legislative and then from legislative into political. And um, that's how the skill set happened. It just came very slowly. I think it was kind of like a lobster. You get kind of cooked really slowly. You get dropped into the water when you're raw. And if you keep it at a low temperature, you just sort of cook over time. And you're screaming. And here I am and screaming. <laughs> <laughs> or like a boiled frog. You and don't even well, know what hits you. Exactly. You have no idea. And then suddenly you wake up and you're, you know, however old you are and you have more skills and you have more confidence. I love the Isabel stories. I feel like we could just do a chapter book (laughs) and this would have like 192 chapters. Are you having a visual journey along this ride? Because I'm sitting here, the movie's playing in my head. I'm I'm not wanting to turn it off. I'm having like visceral physical reactions. I'm having like so many crush moments on things that happened in your life. It's almost like this beautiful envy where I'm like, that is so cool. And so enlightening. So many moments of like, how you chose to experience your moments is huge for me. When we, in our, the last podcast episode, you talk about this Harvard professor, you had chosen to spell the word bizarre, like, like a market bizarre, B-A-Z. You, you chose to spell it B-I-Z, like that's weird, that's bizarre. And he recognized that and he asked you a question about whether you knew the difference. And he put on his fedora and he went out to the Harvard bookstore and he got you a dictionary, came back and threw it on your desk. How you handled that moment, choosing to say, cool, he recognized this. I can be here. I can hang. I'm going to hang. I'm going to get better. I'm going to keep this dictionary for life. And you chose to take that as a moment to pivot forward rather than stop, resist, break down and sob like some of us, no names might. I, I, I'm very, I'm, I'm 
I'm impacted by your stories and your moments. Well, and I and mentioned before in the previous bo- podcast and now is that we're all individual. We have every one of us has a different response. And my response was, damn it, I'm going to see you tomorrow morning. I will be back tomorrow morning. And if we have to go through this exercise again, we'll go through it again until I get it. And now I have my dictionary. <laughs> and it, it just, it was a part of my profile. It's something that came with my DNA. Not all of us have that same response. You know, someone else might have been very horribly offended and said, you could have explained it and not gone through the exercise. But it was impactful, just as she said. I, to this moment, why would I tell this story 40, 50 years? I don't know how long it's been, years later was impactful. And keep that dictionary as something of pride, as yes. a pivotal moment and not something of, I think from like reflecting on how I would have looked at it and and thinking how many moments have I maybe uh, not taken the opportunity to view differently or to take as a moment of growth. Um, I, I look at myself, especially my younger self would have taken that as a moment of shame yes. and embarrassment. And that dictionary would have been a scar and you holding that dictionary as a moment of pride and growth and a pivotal moment. I think you said it was, it was a pivotal moment for your, your career. I love that. And it's, it's changing the way I'm now thinking, okay, next opportunity you have for growth, be ready for that. Well, what I want to share though, it's very important to me that you know that I was horribly embarrassed. I was mortified. I was like, oh, oh my gosh. I mean, here I am with my high school diploma trying to work with, with Harvard professors from the School of Law. It wasn't until the later moments when I reflected and I saw back the jewels that had happened along the way. And this is one of them. So yes, I was embarrassed at the moment. So I would say to the audience today, be embarrassed or be the feeling, own the feelings that you have, let them process and then move on and see it as a moment that is reflective of your growth. Mm. I think that could, just like as, as Candace said, I would have been right there saying, I'm not good enough. End scene. You had that same feeling. I'm not good enough right now in this moment, but I'm showing up tomorrow morning. Mm-hmm. I'm coming back. I, I want to soak up so many more lessons. So I'm just going to straight out ask oh, you, can we get a, f- a few of the lessons some of the maybe the leadership management lessons that you learned while running the advance office for the Clinton White House? Uh, It was a quick study because I went from the campaign uh, to the White House and discovered, you know, you don't get exactly a job description when you get there. It's not exactly on the shelf where you read it up on the government profile, you know, level 37, here's your description. No, that's not it. You have no description at all. You're coming straight off the campaign and you're going straight into government. And and so there you are. So I say that because I didn't realize that I was in charge of the budget for the entire travel operation that had to happen for the White House side of it. And I didn't realize that I was managing a staff, full-time staff of 75 people and 500 traveling people. And that is, those are the people that are out in the country that leapfrog from location to location to prepare. So if we're going to hit... You know, uh, if we're going to hit uh, Illinois and then we're going to go to Colorado and then we're going to go to California, you see the trend, you're moving west, then you need preparation teams in each one of those locations and each one has five people. 
And in another month, you might be traveling to the G7, and maybe you have to go to Germany, or maybe it's Nova Scotia, or maybe it could be in Italy that year. You've also got a team of 10 that's there managing. So my responsibility was back at the office making sure that the schedule for the president was staffed and that it was going to be implemented uh, in the right way. So I didn't really know when you get there, you just kind of hit the floor running. And at first, I wasn't very good at it because I was overwhelmed by it. And once I gave myself time to understand the structure of the White House and how it worked and who was in charge of each of the places that I needed to make happen, I had to have a relationship in every location that I needed to have happen because I needed a quick study if I was in a jam. So, yes, you come into government You come and learn who your relationships and your contacts are. And then you realize what the demand is for your expertise. And it was there that I learned to manage and do leadership. And it was there that I learned that I, when I work with lawyers, it's not, don't tell me what I cannot do. Would you please tell me what I can do? It's a very different perspective. Why? Because I want you to join me in leading this massive group forward to this next place. And I did it relationship by relationship. So if I needed someone in the congressional office, then I made a friend in the congressional office. Uh, Usually congressional office is handled by the different departments in the White House, but you find your resources to help you move forward just like you would in any professional position Landing on the ground, a new place, a new job, a new leadership, new staff, new new owners, and you go. The government and White House is no different than the State Department, than the Justice Department, than the Agricultural Department. It just happens to have the leader of the free world in that office. Yes. So there wasn't any sort of manual. There wasn't somebody leaving behind this playbook for you to follow. You had to make up your job, essentially figure it out, figure out how to do it in the best way possible. Um, Did you have moments of imposter syndrome? Did you have moments going, okay, I'm just a farm girl with typing. What, what am I, you know, what am I doing? You have hit the nail on the head. I have had the imposter syndrome for 50 years. I believe it's actually what pushed me through because I just couldn't, I mean, there I was walking the halls and right in front of the oval. And I, you know, I, I'll share a story as I got there right from the inauguration, my car brought me because now I'm a senior advisor to the president of the United States and I had my own assigned car. What is that? So of course you get in it. <laughs> And the drive was from the Capitol to the White House, and I had all my security clearances and all my pictures and everything was ready to go. So I just opened the gate and they said, welcome. And I, it took me into the complex and then I was in my office. But my point is that I didn't know the structure and there are certain credentialing systems for areas that you have for security zones, Right. And so I was in my new office trying to grapple with the imposter syndrome because I was sure someone was going to come in and tell me I was the wrong person in that office. And the gentleman walked in and he said, hi, he was from the Secret Service. His name is Joel Cadshaw. I can remember it today. He came in and he said, welcome to the White House. Can I take you down to get your pass? And I said, 
Yes. If you could lead the way, because I have no idea where we are. And he chuckled. Why? Because everyone comes in and asks that. And so I said, yes, of course, let's do that. And so we, he, uh, the Secret Service Operations Office was one floor down from mine. And so he said, let's walk down this hall. We'll take the staircase and our office is right below. You may want to stop in the ladies' room and maybe freshen your makeup. And I said, oh, oh, thank you for that. Well, I had come from the inauguration and I went into the bathroom and I looked like a panda. I had mascara. I had cried so much at the inauguration. I cried because my practice husband, I beat him. I fucking beat him. And I was crying. And the Secret Service agent said, maybe you might want to clean up your mascara. And I went in and I did. I looked like a panda. So I cleaned up my eyes and I took my first official photograph for my credentials. Now, I'll finish this story by saying, he then said to me, um, I then said to him, you know, this is the how I need to get over to the Oval occasionally. Will this past take me over to the Oval Office. And he said, let me put it this way. If you walk into the Oval, you go straight down the President's hallway. You get into the President's elevator and go up to the private residence. Not a one of us is going to stop you. And I said, oh, I knew that. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yes, very intimidating environment, but they brought me along because they also have to work with the new staff, correct? Mm -hmm. I didn't know it then. I knew it later. What do you have to say to somebody who is going just in the, I mean, you said you've still been grappling with imposter syndrome. What do you say to people, same, uh, what do you say to people dealing with imposter syndrome? Own it, let it be, process it, take it in, identify it. And then throw that shit away. Mm -hmm. We had a session yesterday. Love that. We had a session yesterday with somebody that said, figure out, take an inventory, figure out what is yours. And if it's not yours, set it down. And I think there is ownership to be taken yet in this world, especially by women, especially by women in positions of power, positions of influence, positions, positions of importance. You're making things happen. You are an agent of change. You're a disruptor. You're doing all the things. Isabel makes it happen. You own it and you take what's yours. And you go, I have a right to be here. Yes, I as have. As much a, as anyone else. Absolutely. And I, I think that is, that taking the inventory, I think we mentioned it in the previous podcast, is really important because there is value in every one of us. And not any of us in this world can do it all perfectly. So we're going to have some of those things that just won't apply this time. Maybe they just don't apply. Well, my inventory is that I'm instinctual. My instinct is good. My judgment is right on. Those are two qualities that are important to me. They work for me. They give me information. Those will be, those are lifers for me. Those are lifers. There's some other things I just don't do well. I don't know how to do a short interview. <laughs> I don't, don't know how to talk. To. I mean, yeah, we don't. I want don't to. know how to talk, and yeah, I don't how, know how to talk in sound bites because there's just so much that I've learned that I want to share. And why do I want to share that? Because I lived it, and it's hard. 
it's hard to feel out of sorts. It's hard to not feel like a part of the unit, whether the unit is an office or a campaign or a project that you're working on. Even I'm going to say stay-at-home moms that are working in community projects with other moms. It's all relative, every bit of it. And I, I don't think they have to be mutually exclusive. I think you can have imposter syndrome to this day. Yes. And look back and go, I owned that shit. I owned that shit. God, I did that well. Yes. And th they both can exist together. Can you tell us about, you were, you were in charge of the Million Mom March. Um, and for those in our audience who might not know what that is, can you fill us in? Oh, to the year 2000, I would say late 1999 and um, maybe January, February of 2000, early on. There was a horrible scene in Los Angeles of a preschool that had been shot and preschoolers were being walked across the street. We all saw it on the news and we were mortified. But all of us look and we were mortified. And I got a phone call from a woman named Donna Dees Thomason. She's a mother in New York, didn't know her, cold call. She was a, um, a promoter for uh, David Letterman's evening show and she was going to use the power of her position to do something about gun safety. It was shortly after that that Columbine happened, and shortly after that, Washington, D.C. Zoo, the National Zoo, actually was closed for a day because of the shooting. And so she found me, and I was working at the National Education Association at the time, but I did not know that she had been looking for me for a month and she had been calling and trying to find me, and she finally reached me. Her goal was to develop a demonstration on Mother's Day specifically so that mothers could come forward and voice their pain of the need for gun safety. This was the first gun safety rally of our generation in terms of speaking out against what can be done. It was important that it not be gun control because it was, uh, you know, it, it, there was a segment that we were really uh, very careful about, you know, recreational and things like that. But uh, yes, she hired me to do that. And I am the one who produced and brought you the Million Mom March on Mother's Day 2000. There was an attendance of 800,000 people on the National Mall and all of the celebrities, including Reese Witherspoon and oh my gosh, uh, Rosie O'Donnell and um, every mother that you could imagine that was out there and wanted to be a part of this piece. And it was 22 years ago. It's unfortunate that it did not have progress on that issue. But what was most important for me was an evolving of my abilities because I then could apply everything that I had learned in the White House and in my life skills. And I could now pick the projects that I wanted to work on, that I had passion for, that I would decide would get the value of my experience. And that was one. That's so powerful. I mean, you've moved on from being voluntold. Yes, I now volunteer. <laughs> <laughs> What a pivotal moment for you to take some ownership of now these skills that you've been, I mean, just harnessing and collecting and building, you know, throughout this career. And it sounds like Million Moms March was such a pivotal moment for you to channel those and recognize that you had this great skill set and they have it has value and you can apply it. 
how you want. So what are your core values and what helps you bolster your confidence? I mean, especially at that point in time, now you're looking for this new shift. Um, I'm actually going to share, uh, at the risk of extending this interview, I'm going to share one more story that even bolstered it more. As I did a phenomenal job at um, the uh, Million Mom March, and I thought, oh, thank goodness, I now know that I can do this. But I really took it as a very personal experience that I was able to do that. Uh, Where I'm going is getting the phone call from um, General Colin Powell. Uh, to be able to work with him on the America's Future, which was the formation of social responsibility in corporations. How do we now find corporations to build into community? And this is when you saw corporations start moving toward giving volunteer hours for people who did, who went out and did community service, or they, you know, recognized that community was important for corporations. And so working uh, with Colin Powell, the most important thing here was that he had summons and got the response of all the living presidents to come to that event. And so we had President Ford and we had President Carter and we had, uh, you know, President Clinton and we had Vice President Bush, I mean, Vice President Gore, and we had everybody. And at that place, I was tasked with the protocol. Uh, That was my assignment was to work the protocol, the arrival, the participation and the departure of all the living presidents. So to me, that was my next step. It wasn't only one event, but now it was four or five living presidents. And when I was done with that, I said, oh my gosh, what has happened here? I took some moment, I always had time after the event was over to reflect. It is important for me and for Isabel to have some moments to understand what happened just now in this three-month process. So after having done this uh, uh, launch event for America's Promise, I then knew I had it and I needed to remember that I had it and not deny myself that I had it. And so I stopped for a moment and I realized that my pillars were becoming stronger. They were smaller as a youthful woman and they were getting more girth and they were getting bigger as I was moving forward. So I realized today that I stand before my audiences at any time as a woman who's rooted in tradition. I am rooted in tradition and I'm rooted in uh, valuing women because of my experience. And um, I'm rooted in family values. I'm rooted in the fact that women have phenomenal strength and ideas. At the moment, we see fewer of those ideas because fewer women are in the mix of that process, be it political or corporate or otherwise. Going is that in, in, in emphasizing the importance of how women look at issues versus how men look at issues, and this is part of my value system here, is that we're just different, you know? It's not that men are bad and women are bad. We're just biologically different. You're a guy and I'm a girl. And we have different brains and we operate and we apply very differently. And so when she said this particular thing, we had a wonderful speaker, Reshma Sajani, and she started Girls Who Code. And that was to get girls more involved in STEM professions. What was very interesting was that in her class, she had two girls who developed an app for tampons, a tampon app. But it struck me like lightning. No guy would ever think of a tampon app. 
it was absolutely to me the perfect moment to say it would never have come because it's not what you experience. And therein, I took in the value of the importance of holding your own as a woman. We just have different experiences than men, biologically, physiologically, you know, we're just different and it's all good. And it's valuable. It is immensely valuable. So my core values, tradition, I am stuck in some tradition. I do have, I'm a 50s, I'm a boomer. I have the tradition part of me in there. I do believe in marriage. I think it's a struggle. It's the hardest thing I've ever had to do. You know, that. thank goodness I had the practice one. <laughs> um, and now, I guess 20 years in the first one, 20 years in the second one, I'm doing good. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm rooted in tradition. I'm rooted in strengthening and, and moving forward women's presence and values. And so if I can be that woman and that role model that you see when you look there, then I feel I have accomplished one of my goals and pillars. I see you. Yeah. Word. <laughs> you, we've talked about duality. You've talked about being, yes, an imposter, also owning what you're capable of, and sometimes at the same time. You've talked about the duality between genders, that there are differences. That's okay. Let's have mutual respect for both and acknowledge them. You've also seen tremendous amounts of change for women, both in your industry. You were a disruptor in your industry. You were on the forefront, being that woman in that position, doing what you were doing. But you've also seen other changes. Things like, do you remember the first time women were allowed to get credit cards? Do you remember a day when they couldn't? When yes. women couldn't have credit cards? Yes. Or birth control. When did birth control come around? 1965. 65. Mm -hmm. Can you... Oh my... I, I don't... I mean... <laughs> It's not, Can you tell us about all the different things? Well, yeah, I, I, I don't I don't have the piece in front of me right now, so I'll miss some. But yes, you're talking about birth control in 1965. You're talking about 1972 or 73, that in this one of the M states, I forget which the M state is, actually um, had legislation on the books that you cannot rape your wife. It wasn't until the 70s that it was established that you cannot just avail yourself sexually of the woman that you're married to. Mississippi? I think it might be. Um, then, there was an op then there was a time to be able to, to apply for a loan, to look for a car. I actually had the car experience. I was in living in McLean, Virginia, and I went to the Virginia uh, Auto, it was Mercedes dealership. I was going to pick, uh, pick up my first Mercedes. And I walked in there and the salesman came up and he said, ma, 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 ma. And I said, ma, 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 ma. And he said, are you interested in this car? I said, I think so, very much so. And he said, well, then when you come back with your husband, I think we'll be able to, you know, we'll be able to take care of this deal. Come back with your husband. We can buy the car. I said, excuse me? And he said, you know, that we need to do his application. In my head, the very next day I crossed the state line and went from Virginia to Maryland and I bought a car. He called me back and he said, are you ready to buy that car? I said, oh, hell no, I already got one. He said, what? I said, yes, you wouldn't sell it to me. So I went to Maryland and I bought me the car. It's my car. I bought it. So yes, there was a time when I experienced that. Women were to be maybe seen and not heard. 
I can't tell you the number of times I was the only woman in the room. I can't tell you how I felt sitting around the conference room table. Uh, maybe 20% of us were women. And there had been an earthquake in California. We were in Washington, D.C. in bad storm. And everybody looked at me and said, can Air Force One fly? Yes, there are moments that actually blend. It is becoming a woman and being a woman. That is my generation. We've talked a lot about your huge political career and the nonprofit work you've done as a result of that or after that. That aside, and without us making any assumptions, what are your true core life passions? Women and their advancement. Women and their acceptance of how phenomenal they are from the get-go, have no doubt. Women and healthy families, not toxic families, healthy families. I think that is my greatest concern. I'm a concern, but my, 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 my interest in energy. I could mentor all day, and I could mentor for months. I would be the first one on the list. <laughs> we'll fight for first position. Would absolutely adore you as a mentor. Thank you. So from the bottom of our hearts, thank you for being here and for sharing this with us. You are the ultimate baddie, and I can't even believe we have you here. Oh, no. I am so grateful. For our listeners, uh, you can get more information at rowcapitalgroup.com. Check underneath the show notes and on our blog. You can also email us with questions. We love to hear from you. The email is media at rowcapitalgroup.com. And then check us out on TikTok, Women TF Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And Isabel, again, thank you so much for being here with us. And thank you for inviting me. Every day you hear about people making money by investing in IPOs and startups. But what about you? These kinds of investments are simply not available to Main Street investors. At Rowe Capital Group, we are committed to providing access to strategic, early stage, primarily low market correlated investment opportunities. Accredited investors go to rowcapitalgroup.com for more information. Rowe Capital Group, empowering your financial journey.